the ASEAN Summit, a new governor in Bangkok, and Indonesian palm oil. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Simon Tranhutis. Today is May 24th, 2022. On today's show... We know that uh, the IPEP is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. It's not ASEAN Economic Framework. And there's the discussion that maybe many, many members of ASEAN will not be qualified. That was Bic Tran, an adjunct fellow with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. She sat down with Greg and Alina to explain what actually happened at last week's U.S. ASEAN Summit, as well as Vietnamese Prime Minister Pham Minh Chin's big speech at CSIS. First, though... The headlines. All right, here with me in the studio today is Megan Sullivan. She's a student at George Washington University and an intern here with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Megan, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. Excited to be here. Great, great. So, Megan, what was the biggest news coming from Southeast Asia this week? Well, the big news is that Southeast Asia literally came to D.C. Leaders from eight out of the 10 ASEAN nations came to D.C. from May 12th to 13th to meet with President Biden and other administration officials. Nice. Uh, Sounds long overdue. So aside from clogging up D.C. streets with nonstop motorcades, what do you think were some of the highlights from the summit? Well, obviously, the most important meeting was Vietnamese Prime Minister Pham Minh Chin's speech on U.S.-Vietnam relations right here at CSIS. (laughs) Is that right? Okay, fine. That probably wasn't the most important meeting, but it was really interesting. During that speech, Prime Minister Chin offered clarity on a few important areas. First, he clarified Vietnam's position on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is basically that it doesn't want to antagonize its largest arms supplier, But at the same time, Vietnam thinks the independent sovereignty of all nations, especially small nations, is really important. The prime minister also sought assistance from the United States to help reach its goal of zero carbon emissions by 2050. Awesome. So uh, what else happened at the summit? Well, probably the most important thing that came out of the whirlwind of meetings was a $150 million pledge by the United States to offer seed investment in ASEAN across climate infrastructure, supply chains, maritime security, educational exchange, and other initiatives. Many analysts saw the dollar figure as disappointingly low, although the State Department points out that its investments in these areas will catalyze potentially billions more from the private sector. So uh, following up the U.S. ASEAN summit, it looks like Biden has made a trip to South Korea and Japan this week where he made a couple of big announcements. Yeah, that's right. So first off, it looks like the United States, Australia, India, and Singapore will be pulling their satellite tracking resources to shed light on illegal fishing, mostly by Chinese vessels across the South China Sea, as well as in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. Second, you've heard us talk about the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework several times on this podcast. Well, it's finally official. Biden announced the formation of the framework on May 23rd, and seven of the 10 ASEAN states have been invited to negotiate. The agreement will seek to raise standards on digital and traditional trade, infrastructure, decarbonization, labor standards, and anti-corruption. But with U.S. market access off the table, it could be difficult for the Biden administration to convince countries to step up to the plate. All right, well, speaking of Thailand, there was a gubernatorial election that has received a lot of press. Voters on May 23rd took to the polls for Bangkok's first election for governor since the military coup in 2014. 
Independent candidate Chad Chat Sitipun won the election by a landslide. Megan, you've been tracking this. What do we know about Bangkok's next governor? Yeah, so Chachart was formerly a transport minister in the Pewtai Party or PTP government that was overthrown in a 2014 coup. Despite his ties with the PTP, though, he ran for governor as an independent, likely an attempt to distance himself from a party that has historically lacked popularity in the capital. Well, it sounds like Chachart's landslide victory was clearly a big deal for Bangkok itself. What are the implications for Thai national politics? So many analysts have viewed this election as a bellwether for Thailand's next national election, which is expected to take place before May of next year. Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-cha, who led the coup in 2014, is likely eyeing Chachart's resounding victory in Bangkok with concern. The results of the Bangkok election may be indicative of broader popular discontent with Prayut's government. Now, for our final news story, let's take a look at what's been an eventful couple weeks for Indonesia's palm oil sector. In late April, the Indonesian government suspended exports of palm oil. This was supposed to counter what appeared to be a domestic shortage and to keep cooking oil affordable in Indonesia. Just three weeks later, though, President Joko Widodo announced that domestic bulk cooking oil supplies had improved and proceeded to lift the export ban on May 23rd. Well, that was pretty short-lived. Did it have any effect? Yeah, it was short-lived. As the world's largest producer of palm oil, any move from Indonesia to restrict palm oil exports is definitely going to rattle the global markets. News of the ban sent global palm oil prices soaring. The export ban reversal could help to relieve some pressure on global food prices, which would be welcomed as high prices continue to squeeze consumers following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's also important to note that the export ban did not go over too well at home. It sent hundreds of smallholder farmers to the streets to protest the resulting hit to their incomes. Failure of the ban to rein in domestic cooking oil prices is also believed to have contributed to President Jokowi's approval rating slumping to a six-year low, according to Indikator Politik Indonesia. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Megan, for stopping by. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Bik Tran, adjunct fellow with the CSIS Southeast Asia program, to talk about the outcomes of the U.S. ASEAN summit. Stay tuned. Hey, listeners! This is Greg Poling with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio. I am joined uh, for this episode, as always, by my partner in crime, Alina Noor of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Hello again. And our special guest, Bik Tran, who is an adjunct fellow with the Southeast Asia program here. Thanks, Greg, and thank Elena for having me here. So we're going to talk today about the recently concluded U.S. ASEAN Special Summit, the visit by Prime Minister Fan Min Chin and seven other leaders from ASEAN, and all the myriad meetings and announcements that went on around the sidelines. So at the top, U.S. ASEAN Special Summit. This thing has been delayed a couple of times. First, it was announced during the Trump administration, got pushed off. Then it was supposed to happen earlier this year. Got pushed off again. Biden administration finally made it happen, and I think there's been a lot of consternation around what exactly the deliverables were. Bottom line is, I think this was most important symbolically, and I welcome disagreement. But the fact is that this is about diplomacy, and in diplomacy, symbolism matters. The president finally took out time. Eight other heads of state took out time to fly across the Pacific to get together for two days. We had the announcement that the U.S.-ASEAN relationship will be elevated to a comprehensive strategic partnership in November, whatever that means. What I do know is it's the same thing that China got last year and that Australia got. So I assume 
the most important thing is to keep the U.S. and China on equal footing. The U.S. administration also announced finally a new ambassador to ASEAN, Johannes Abraham, who's a, a longtime aide to President Biden. He'll be the first U.S. resident ambassador to the ASEAN Secretary in Jakarta since Nina Hachigian left in 2017. Um, and then the thing that maybe we really want to dig into is the big headline number, $150 million in new initiatives announced by uh, the United States. So I don't know, Bick, Alina, what do we think? $150 million? Is that pretty good? Depends what your baseline is, right? So $150 million from nothing, I guess, is pretty good. But uh, $150 million, if you're comparing numbers, especially with the billions that were poured into Ukraine over the past few weeks, few months, pretty paltry if the $150 million is supposed to be stretched over 10 countries, population size of about nearly $700 million. I think the U.S. can do better. Now, okay, I want to caveat, though, that Ukraine is in a war. I'm trying really hard not to make comparisons with another major power because that's what a lot of people have been doing. And I think we discussed this, Greg, that I think comparing that with this other major power only undercuts a lot of the arguments that have been coming out from the region that the relationship with the U.S. shouldn't be compared with other relationships. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I think that also about the, you know, the method, uh, you know, the different methods as well. You know, when people compare to China blessed for, is that 1.5 billion or something? That's right. China last November at the China ASEAN summit pledged 1.5 billion, which is uncomfortably exactly 10 times yeah. as much as the U.S. just pledged. And then I think that usually the United States is trying to, you know, deliver what is promised. So 150 million uh, initially, but uh, the important thing that it could lead to something much bigger in the future, you know, mobilize billions of dollars in private uh, investment, you know, in the coming years. But, you know, something in the future, you know, we're not sure. So I think the United States is play, playing safe by not putting a, a exact figure. But we know that, you know, China has pledged, you know, many deals before it, and it never delivers those. It is, I think, somewhat frustrating to U.S. officials and policymakers that China's math never seems to get checked. <laughs> so, I mean, China could announce any number it wants at an ASEAN summit. I'll give a trillion dollars and, and that'll be the headline. Whether or not China actually delivers that money is somewhat immaterial. It is true that, you know, the U.S. delivers billions of dollars in ongoing programs that have been set up over years, many of which are extremely popular in the region. I think a big part of the problem here was the messaging, not the substance. Everything that's in that $150 million is welcome in the region on infrastructure and the $60 million in Coast Guard cooperation on maritime security. I mean, these are all public goods that the region wants. The problem was putting a price tag on it. If they hadn't done that, I think the headlines in the region would actually be more positive than they were otherwise. I think that's a good point. A lot of those initiatives reflect what the region has long been asking for, right? So apart from maritime cooperation, there's also the people-to-people -people stuff, the educational ties. And these are investments into the future, which I guess, Vic, you were alluding to, right? It's not a one-off thing, and this summit wasn't supposed to be the end-all and be-all, be-all and end-all of the relationship. And so I guess the U.S. is taking a longer-term approach. It's signaling that it's there, investing in the youth and rising leaders of the region. But it does, the $150 million, I mean, does seem pretty small compared to some of the other numbers floating around. 
And I also agree with Greg about the messaging is important, but uh, I, I don't think that we should follow China in doing the same way. I think that's right. One of the other problems that the U.S. runs into always, of course, is that most U.S. investment happens in the private space. So you see the joint statement will say we're going to pledge X millions of dollars and we think that it'll unlock X billions of dollars in private capital. And that may or may not be true. But if GE comes in or Caterpillar comes in or whatever and makes an investment in South Asia, the U.S. government doesn't get points for that on the narrative score sheet. China gets points because all of the Chinese investments can be either state directed or state owned. And so the U.S. by, I think, playing this game of trying to put dollar signs on it is actually playing into China's advantages in a way that's not very helpful. Yeah, especially since they're just completely different models, right? As you pointed out, SOEs from China uh, or Chinese government investment directly versus the private sector in the U.S. So let's talk Ukraine. We have to, right? We had a joint statement. I, I hit the highlights. There was the standard language on the South China Sea, standard language on North Korea, etc. The paragraph that got the most attention was the paragraph on Ukraine. Didn't say the word Russia. Let's get that right out yeah. in the open. That's what most American commentators think jumped on first. But it was a significant improvement over the three ASEAN foreign minister statements about Ukraine we've had since February. It said that the ASEAN foreign ministers expressed respect for Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty, which seems like a pretty clear implicit criticism of Russia. Big, what do you think is... Have we seen a significant moving of the needle within ASEAN on Russia-Ukraine? I think, you know, from the statement, we can say that both the United States and ASEAN made some compromise in, you know, issuing that joint statement, right? So I think the requirement, you know, not mentioning Russia, I think that came from ASEAN side. But, you know, ASEAN, ASEAN leaders also try to accommodate U.S. side by, you know, agreeing on that point, you know, of respecting the uh, sovereignty and, and territorial integrity of Ukraine. So I think that's a, a, a good signal. I mean, I think, okay, a lot of people have been making a big deal out of this paragraph, right? To be honest, I don't see a huge departure from many of the ASEAN statements about respect for territorial integrity, sovereignty, etc., etc. These are long-held principles in the ASEAN tradition. What was different was the inclusion of Ukraine. But if you look at the paragraph, there's also the addition of as for all nations. And so in the traditional ASEAN way, this is meant to be an inclusive affirmation of these long-held values principles in the region. So I, I personally don't make such a big deal out of it, but I understand why some others may. I mean, it was interesting that Prime Minister Kishida from Japan seemed to spend some amount of political capital during his recent visits to Bangkok, Hanoi, and Jakarta getting language like this from the leaders, presumably to pave the way both for this compromise with the U.S., but also for Biden's attendance in the fall at the G20 and the ASEAN and APEC summits. Do we think it's going to be enough? I think, sure, Japan is trying to play a more forward-leaning role in the region. And this could have been one of those measures that uh, Prime Minister took in furtherance of that. But I, I think the real, and maybe this is a, sort of an evasion of your question, Greg, but I think the real crux of the matter is that a lot of ASEAN states will be looking to see what comes out of President Biden's trip to Japan with specific regard to IPEF. 
So we can talk about Ukraine, sure. That may be one of the things that a lot of ASEAN nations are willing to quote-unquote compromise on in the language of joint vision statement. But we'll wait to see what comes out of Japan when the IPF is announced. And I think that this time they explicitly mention Ukraine, even though not Russia. I think that's the most that they will do in terms of the language. So we've we've reached ASEAN's bottom line, I think, here. This, the language isn't going to get any stronger than this. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. and the rest of the G7 are going to have to be okay with that. And I, I should note that we're recording this after the ASEAN summit and just a couple days before President Biden gets on the plane. So by the time listeners hear this, they'll know what came out of President Biden's meetings in Seoul and Tokyo. And maybe we'll have an Indo-Pacific economic framework by the time you're listening. Maybe we won't. How exciting. Let's transition over, though, to talk about uh, one specific leader's visit, and that's Prime Minister Fen Minh Chin of Vietnam. I think uh, it was clear to me, and I think to many in Washington, that the Vietnamese government was probably the most determined to make this summit happen, the most excited, the one that worked the hardest for the original dates to stick. And Prime Minister Chin is the only one of the ASEAN leaders who delivered a public speech while he was here in in Washington, which happened here at CSIS. So, Vic, you wrote a, a kind of quick take for us after the Prime Minister's speech. What were your big takeaways? What message was he trying to deliver while he was here in town for his first ever visit to the U.S.? Yeah, so um, he talks about a lot of things and including, you know, many usual talking points. Uh, For example, you know, Vietnam's foreign policy of independence and self-reliance, diversification and multilateralization of external relations. Uh, Also, you know, of course, the South China Sea disputes and Mekong and of course the COVID-19. But, you know, from the very long speech, 45 minutes, I had three takeaways. The first one is that the Prime Minister remarks helped to clarify the Vietnamese government's positions on the Russia-Ukraine war. So um, Vietnam abstained from voting from the United Nations General Assembly resolution condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine because it wanted to maintain positive relations with its largest um, suppliers. However, the Prime Minister stressed that Vietnam has a consistent position of respect for United Nations Charter, independent sovereignty, territorial integrity, and legitimate interests of other states. So this suggested that Hanoi does not support the invasion. And second, although Vietnam abstained from the UN resolution about humanitarian consequences of the invasion, uh, Vietnamese people uh, emphasized with the Ukrainian people and have provided 500,000 US dollars in humanitarian aid. And the second takeaway is that Vietnam, you know, vote, uh, voted against the UN resolution on suspending Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. That decision somewhat damaged its reputation. And, you know, Vietnam did not abstain from voting uh, like the last two terms because right before the vote happens, Russia sent a note to selected members saying that it would consider any yes vote or an abstention as an unfriendly gesture and threatening about the consequences of such action. So uh, that's uh, explain why Vietnam voted no against that uh, resolution. So during the speech at um, CSIS, Prime Minister Ching took the chance to remind the audience that 
Vietnam has been an active and responsible member of the international communities. Uh, so he talked about Vietnam's contribution for UN peacekeeping missions in 2014, its ASEAN chairmanship in 2020, its performance as a non-permanent member of the United Nations Security Council for the 2020 and 21 terms. Vietnam also hosted the second U.S.-North Korea summit in 2019, provided other countries you know, with COVID-19 assistance at the beginning of the pandemic, and also committed to carbon uh, neutrality by 2050. So that's a lot of things to demonstrate that Vietnam has been an active and responsible member of the international communities. It's interesting because a lot of other ASEAN member states also voted the same way in uh, the matter of whether to suspend Russia from the UN Human Rights Council or not. Um, so the fact that the Vietnamese leader took this opportunity during his speech at CSIS to explain the position, I think, is quite something. But how much of it was also for a, a domestic audience pick? Uh, for domestic audience, mm -hmm. I think, you know, uh, like some other, you know, like I think that some people you know, inside Vietnam uh, were quite disappointed uh, with the, the government's decisions to, you know, first abstain from voting and then, you know, voted no for the resolution about the human rights. So I think that's also the message also go for the Vietnamese audience as well. It, this is a difficult thing to talk about given the timing of our recording with a potential IPEF announcement coming up next week. But it seemed from the Prime Minister's remarks at CSIS and recent reporting that maybe Vietnam is backing off a little bit on enthusiasm for the Indo-Pacific economic framework. Or at the very least, it's taking a wait-and-see approach more than some other members. I mean, Singapore, Philippines, now Thailand have all pretty clearly expressed their intention to join. How do you think Vietnam's feeling about the IPEF right now? Yeah, so that's uh, related to my third takeaway from uh, the Prime Minister's speech at CSIS. So he didn't mention IPEF by name, actually, and he just said that he mentioned that there's some potential areas for U.S.-Vietnam cooperation Uh, including green growth, digital transformation, and supplies uh, diversification. So those areas uh, overlapped with IPEP, but he didn't mention the framework by name. So he's showing the interest of Vietnam to join, but I think he's be being cautious because we know that uh, the IPEP is the Indo-Pacific economic framework, it's not ASEAN economic framework. And there's a discussion that maybe many, many members of ASEAN will not be qualified or don't meet the standards to join IPEP. So I think now Premier Ching was uh, being cautious about that. Well, I think Vietnam also has its hands full trying to harmonize its domestic regulations with its CPTPP obligations right now. And depending on how IPEF turns out, that effort, that domestic effort may well also feed into some of the IPEF uh, mandates later on. So yeah, I guess smart of him to play a wait and see game until the details finally emerge. Or not, as the case may be. We'll find out soon. <laughs> So I think, you know, what Vietnam did to prepare, you know, to implement the CPTPP and also the European Union Vietnam Free Trade Agreements will help for Vietnam to join IPEP. But of course, we don't know where the, what is the, what are the achievements. So I think that's a, the safe way to say. Mm -hmm. 
So I think the last thing that we should talk about today is the empty chair at the summit. So there were eight leaders uh, from the 10 South Asian countries. Philippines was represented by its foreign secretary because of the elections. And then the 10th, Myanmar, was represented by an empty chair and a clear and, an, I think, intentional rebuke from both the U.S. and the other ASEAN members. Um, the Myanmar junta had been invited to send a non-political representative, a civil servant, and as they have to each of the ASEAN meetings recently. And again, they refused. And just uh, a day before the official start of the summit, there was a special ASEAN foreign ministers meeting held here in Washington to discuss the situation in in Myanmar. And one of the things raised there was by Malaysian Foreign Minister Saifuddin Abdullah calling for engagement with the National Unity Government, the opposition in Myanmar, for the first time. And he made good on that by meeting with NUG Foreign Ministers in Marong, who was also in town, by no coincidence, I'm sure, during the ASEAN summit. He met with her publicly on Saturday and then talked about it. And I'm pretty reliably informed that he wasn't the only foreign minister from ASEAN to meet with her while she was in town. He was just the only one to, to say it publicly. So, Alina, why is Malaysia uh, the one leaning so far forward on its skis right now uh, in engaging with the Myanmar opposition? Yeah, first of all, I think it's a good thing that that engagement was done and made public. It was a bold move on for Mr. Saifuddin's part, but it also speaks to his grassroots political background. You know, he's always been a champion of democracy and, and human rights, even in his domestic political career. So this sort of accords with what he personally believes in, the fact that he's made it a foreign policy priority also says something about the decision that he made to publicize his meeting with Zin Maong. Now, the more cynical take, of course, is that he's doing this because uh, Malaysia is up for elections very soon over the next few months by next year. And that's certainly a legitimate take, but I think it shouldn't discount the fact that he personally feels very strongly about this issue. We know that Malaysia, backed by Indonesia, Singapore, and to a degree the Philippines, have been the most critical of the Myanmar junta. Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia have been least critical. Vic, do you get the sense that those countries, the ones who have been the least willing to throw the junta overboard, are getting frustrated enough with its obstruction that they might actually engage the opposition directly? I don't think so because um, I'm, I'm, I cannot talk about other countries, but you know, for from I think for Vietnam. If engaging into, you know, domestic matters of Myanmar too much, it could, you know, lead to some potential development in the future that the Vietnamese government doesn't want. I will note that the dry season is coming to an end in Myanmar, which means the top medal, the, the army's offensives against the opposition are likely to slow or stop. The opposition has now proven that it's not going anywhere. It's held on for a year and a half and in fact has gained ground. ASEAN is facing a somewhat existential dilemma here. How does it engage in what is no longer, you know, a military junta facing a domestic insurgency, but a civil war in which both sides have at least equal claim to legitimacy and are probably controlling at least the same amount of territory? ASEAN's never had to deal with this. Right. I mean, what you meant, you mentioned frustration, right, Greg? Even the ASEAN chair is starting to show signs of frustration with dealing with the Tatmadaw. So I think it's pretty serious when even the ASEAN chair is uh, showing these sorts of sentiments. But 
I think it's also important to remember that it's not just a civil war involving two sides, right? There are multiple sides. And consultations should be done not just between or with these two sides, but it should also engage other players uh, with very important stakes in Myanmar's future. So hopefully the, these sideline meetings with the NUG will also be followed by meetings with some of these other stakeholders, including some of the EAOs, the ethnic armed organizations and rep their representatives, but also with a lot of the youth and civil society organizations that feel so rightfully strongly about the future of their country. And I believe that the five-point consensus that ASEAN has allows this uh, width of interpretation and um, actions to be taken without going beyond the confines of the consensus. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Greg Poland with CSIS, joined by Alina Noor and our special guest, Big Tran, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you all so much again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we will be sure to answer any questions that you might have, anything at all. We're still a very new podcast, so do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Laurel Vibertson is our producer. Our interns are Megan Sullivan and Hazen Williams. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Simon Tranhudis. And I'm Megan Sullivan. And we will see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.